and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. So I recently learned about an incredible new book that was just published called Rethinking Food and Agriculture that covers a range of topics, including issues like genetic modification, colonization in the food system, animal ethics, sustainability, and human health. Through the book, I discovered Layla Kasim, who is one of the editors of the book and has been involved in social change and international development for over 15 years. She has a PhD in development economics and is the co-founder of Animal Think Tank, a grassroots organization dedicated to building a social movement for animal freedom in the UK. The book she co-edited and her work and interests looked so in line with my work that I just had to connect with her. And I'm thrilled to have her joining me on the podcast today to discuss her background in international development and her very, very holistic perspective on food, ethics, globalization, and our agricultural systems. Welcome, Layla. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to get into this. So we are just going to jump right into this. And you and I have already spoken a little bit before, and I loved hearing about your story and your background. So the first thing is just, can you tell me a little bit about um, your your background in global development and sort of uh, what led to where you are now? Sure. Well, so yeah, my professional background is in international development, um, where I've worked since 2003. Um, mainly conducting research on poverty and food security in the global south. And I've worked with and for a range of lots, well, lots of different organizations, foundations, government ministries, um, international research institutions. And I've lived in lots of beautiful, amazing places like Kenya and Ghana and Guyana in the course of that work. Um, And so my, my, my training is in economics. I've got a degree in economics and politics, and then I did a master's in development management. Um, And then after about six years working in the field, I um, then got a PhD in development economics, looking at the impact of fish farming on poverty in Ghana. Um, And then after that, I carried on consulting for a few years. And then I think in 2017, I decided to leave the industry. And I do think it's an industry um, because it no longer aligned with my values. Um, And then along the same, uh, the same track around 2013, I became vegan. Um, And after I left development, um, I had the headspace to actually start um, connecting the dots between um, human oppression, which I'd been so concerned with in the field of development and animal oppression and our destruction of the natural world. So all of those um, things led me to then co-editing a book that um, has recently been published called Rethinking Food and Agriculture, um, New Ways Forward, um, and has also led me to um, co-founding a grassroots organization called Animal Think Tank, which is building a mass movement for animal freedom in the UK. Um, so yeah, that's my story. Oh, thank you. 
So what I'm really curious to kind of share with people is a little bit of what you had talked to me about before, but some of the sort of maybe reductionism that you were seeing in the work you were doing and some of the things that sort of made you feel skeptical about uh, a lot of uh, international development and numbers and how you felt like some of it was, um, you know, a little bit being manipulated or reductionist or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, um, well, maybe I can define what I mean by reductionist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that people know where I'm coming from. So I think, um, basically, I, uh, my understanding is that um, it, it's 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 ignoring the wider context, um, which you know, it, the context whether it's agroecosystems, whether it's plants, whether it's societies, which are infinitely complex systems. Um, and just sort of narrowly focusing on um, looking at individual parts that make up that whole, but looking at them in isolation. So, um, you know, and and I I feel like I've I, I've come across a lot of that in the field of economics, in the field of development, and also in agricultural development. And in fact, the book, um, you know, that's one of the main themes in the book um, that we talk about. So. Um, I can't remember what we talked about in terms of what, what I'd said, um, but I think let me let me think about from the economics perspective. I've always found that um, uh, you know narrow focus on things like economic growth um, at the expense of nature and the planet. Um, you know economic models which really um, separate um, the economy from nature, nature and ecologies that it's that we are and economies are embedded in, um, ignoring things like externalities, um, which all kind of, you know, really lead to, um, I think, <laughs> very wrong policy decisions. Um, and, and, and yeah, really, um, has, I think is one of the main reasons that we're facing some of these massive, you know, interconnected crises at the moment. Um, in terms of development, yeah, similarly, I think a sort of um, lack of awareness or understanding of the, of the context within which the development industry is operating in, you know, issues of poverty and food security have deep structural root causes. Um, and yet the projects that I was um, working on were very sort of specific and not not looking at those root causes and when I talk about sort of structural root causes I'm talking about the fact that um, so-called poor less developed countries are actually um, massive amounts of money is being sent from less developed to supposedly more developed countries mm -hmm. the net outflow is something like more than two trillion dollars um, I mean and so you know people say that you know it's actually the developed world is being developed by the so-called underdeveloped world, not the other way around. And, and to me, you can't ignore something so massive and think that, you know, you know, the, the, the aid, that, which is a tiny percentage of that massive outflow, is going to make any significant difference if you're not actually looking at the rules of the game. And those outflows, and that's, that's the structure that has been created, is, is embedded in our economic system, which concentrates power and wealth in, in the hands of fewer and fewer corporations and, and countries. And the rules of the game are written and facilitated and protected by these international organizations like the World Bank and the World Trade Organization and the IMF. 
um, all these organizations that my, co my development colleagues and, my, and you know, the people that I did my master's with, you know, were, were yearning to go and work for, and many of whom have ended up there. Um, so for me, this, you know, this, this became almost intolerable um, during my sort of 15 years, I guess, in, in development. Um, and then there's another aspect as well, which, um, you know, I was mainly focused on rural development. So um, to, a lot to do with agriculture and then also um, fish farming. Um, and in, in the work for the book, I really came to understand um, how reductionist the sort of the dominant agriculture paradigm is. Um, and the, the, the focus on um, what we call in the book, the Green Revolution Industrial Agriculture Paradigm, which is, um, you know, it's a package of agrochemicals, GM seeds, um, uh, tilling the soil, and then all packaged together with, with the, you know, on credit to then, you know, give to the, or to, 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 to lend uh, money to the farmers so that they can, you know, shift from their traditional, more ecological ways of, of growing food and being self-sufficient and shifting to a more industrial model, which will then also feed, um, you know, commodity markets, export markets, etc. Um, so I think this is very reductionist as well. And again, it's a driving cause of the multiple crises that we're facing. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I get that a lot when I even just talk about veganism with people and people say things like, do you really think we could feed the whole world on a vegan diet? Or could we really feed the whole <laughs> world with organic agriculture, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's... It, that's uh it comes up a lot that people think mm -hmm. we absolutely need these institutions and systems yeah and and people just don't realize that they are actually part of the the problem not the solution um and it's just it's really sad it's very orwellian actually so did you ever notice or have any firsthand experiences on the ground when you were in these rural countries where you were hearing or seeing things that were supposed to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then like you were actually having this experience of seeing the other side of it or seeing something different. Yes. And the one thing that, one thing that comes to mind, um, maybe this is more about how, how the industry functions rather than sort of reductionist um, uh -huh. paradigms. Um, and, and that we talked about when we first spoke was, was my experience of doing an impact assessment of a, of a, of a development project that had been going on for 10 years in Kenya, funded by um, the UK government. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, supposedly reaching tens of thousands of households, you know, um, tens of millions of dollars over these years. Um, and I conducted a, a, a survey um, over a, a thousand rural households um, and compared um, things like poverty, food security indicators um, to the baseline from from ten from before the project started, and conducted loads of focus group interviews as well. And what I found is that not only had there been no impact, there had been potentially a negative impact because most of the resources that had been um, put through this project were going to um, the better off members of communities who were then gatekeeping um, these resources. And so, you know, I put all of this in my beautiful report um, and um, it, 
the the ultimate report was edited so all of those things were edited out and then submitted um and during that same period and i was it took me a year to do this impact assessment um there was a consultant who came from from diffid the the uk well no longer exists but the uk development um government development um institution um to do a kind of uh an evaluation um and i i saw firsthand how this works because i was on the other side i was um i was watching how um the ngo um basically got sort of um perfect or what's the word like certain communities who would like come out every time a consultant would come with singing and dancing and you know say what needs to be said or what they want to hear he spent maybe a day out of the five days that he was in Kenya in the field talking to um to community members most of the days were spent in the hotel writing up his report and then he presented us with a glowing report of how brilliantly the project was doing and i i would just i was astounded I really was, you know, and I was 25 at the time and he must have been, you know, you know, he was w- well into his, you know, like late career. Uh-huh. I just couldn't understand I just couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's I think that might have been the story you told that just it, it's just amazing to me because it makes me wonder how much more of that is going on where people either don't see things the way you do or or find a justification in their head to go along with what they're seeing you know it's yeah. like I just wonder that and, and I've had a similar experience not in the same way but um I actually sort of got uh my degree was in biochemistry but my minor or concentration was in policy studies yeah. And so I did in college a bunch of policy study reports where we would have to pick a policy issue and then write this traditional policy analysis where you define what the problem is, you come up with the solutions, and then you come up with a criteria by which you are ranking your solutions, and then you rank your solutions, and then you write the conclusion of like, which policy option is the best to solve your problem? And I found the entire structure of it very frustrating because one, I realized very quickly, you could basically manipulate that system to have your paper say whatever you wanted it to say. It was like, depending on how you defined the problem, you could come up with very different solutions. And then you're arbitrarily ranking the solutions. Like you're saying, oh, justice is one of the criteria. Efficacy is one of the criteria. Political feasibility. Like you're making up your own criteria <laughs> and then you're ranking your own criteria. <laughs> and I just was sitting there going like this, this is like a whole, like I found, I had very mixed feelings about it because I had originally thought I might want to do something in environmental policy or health policy. And I just got very frustrated because I was like, is there anything even like real about this that's not just like arbitrarily manipulated to say whatever we want it to say oh that that really resonates and and as as somebody who's worked in a government ministry I was I worked for the Ministry of Agriculture in Guyana um, for a couple of years and I saw firsthand how policy is made and it's made at the bar (laughs) or or on a on a jolly it's it's it and you know all the sort of um, the recommendations and the time that you spend trying to be, you know, really systematic. It's kind of like, no, it's, you know, on somebody's wow. whim, um, <laughs> based on their interests. 
um, it, it's, it's really quite shocking. Wow. So tell me then a little bit about your book and how you put that together. Um, it's rethinking food and agriculture and what is the overarching like theme and purpose of it? Okay. So yeah, so the book is, well, first I should say I, I co-edited this book with my father, who is um, a, an expert in sustainable agriculture. So it was a really special project for us to do it together. And our, our disciplines really complement each other. And it's an edited volume that brings together what I would say are some of the most forward-thinking academics, activists and practitioners in the food and agriculture sphere. And I think the basic sort of thesis is that the food and agriculture system is a massive part of the problem that we, you know, in terms of these connected crises that, that we're facing, but it also has the potential to be um, a massive part of the solution as well. And we really wanted it to be a kind of holistic, non-reductionist type of, type of approach, um, not just looking at individual parts of the food and agriculture system, but really trying to take a holistic view. Um, so it's transdisciplinary. It looks at some of the root causes. We've got a, a chapter on um, critiquing the, the dominant reductionist, mechanistic scientific paradigm by Rupert Sheldrake. We've got other chapters on, like on the corporate food regime, like lots lots of, of chapters looking at what, what we think are some of the root causes of the problems that we're seeing. But we didn't want it to be totally, you know, just deconstructing. We wanted to also offer some hope, but also to highlight that actually people are doing things, amazing things. Um, and so I would say half of the book is really exploring these new ways forward that activists, development practitioners, um, etc., cetera, are, are, are experimenting with and doing, looking at um, new paradigms of agriculture, so alternative agriculture paradigms, new paradigms of human nutrition, and also in terms of um, new ways of, of looking at political economy. And uh, yeah, so in terms of the sort of overarching themes, um, it's really difficult because it's vast in scope, right? It's it's like 20 dense chapters, which I think we, you, you might have, uh, have looked at some of those, so you know what I mean. But um, in the sort of concluding chapter, we really try to distill some of the, the main themes from the chapters. We sort of settled on needing to move towards more holistic paradigms and mindsets, um, shifting from a narrative of scarcity to one of abundance, moving towards ecological and multifunctional paradigms of agriculture, the importance of decentralizing power in the food and economic systems, mm -hmm. um, moving towards um, diets that promote human and planetary health, um, and the importance of powerful social movements in civil society to bring about these transformations and, and changes. So, yeah. That's just amazing. I mean, I, I haven't been able to read it all the way through, but I have <laughs> looked at it and read a couple of the chapters and it's just amazing. I just like look at every chapter and I'm like, this book is so amazing. And you oh. like put everything I care about into <laughs> one book and, and with all the best authors. Oh, I'm so I'm so pleased to hear you say that. And like when people ask me about the book, like the thing that I say, and it is the truth, is that we put this. This is the book that I wanted to read and I couldn't find. And it was kind of like, let, let's do this. Um, uh -huh. But I'm so happy to hear you say that because I, you know, I I look at it, I think, wow, this is an amazing book. <laughs> you know, this is great. So <laughs> no, it's so cool, and I think it really it's gonna do amazing things. Like I. 
I already sent it to one of my old um, environmental science teachers in college. And I was like, you should use this in your classes. <laughs> Did you get a response? <laughs> he was like, thanks for sharing it. <laughs> He's a, he's a he's a wonderful, lovely, interesting person. So I, I chose carefully who I was sending it to. But um, but yeah, I was just like, this needs to be what's taught in every school system, and it's, you really you. put it together so well. Oh, thank you so much. So have you had any, I guess, critiques of it or responses to it that are? Um, you know, not so positive or people who are more attached to the dominant uh, structures <laughs> and paradigms? Um, so we, have, we haven't had any like really strong critiques. Um, I think, you know, the, the sort of, um, I think the recurring theme in some of the, the less positive um, responses or reviews, let's say, and there's really not that many of them to be, to be fair, um, but it is about actually our promotion of um, veganism. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, because I think that really gets people's backs up and our, I guess, our critique of, not that we've got a massive critique in the book of regenerative grazing or, I mean, we critique it and, and, and grazing more generally, but, you know, one, one reviewer comes to mind in particular and, um, you know, he, he really took issue with that um, and, you know, argued to us that actually some areas need grazing for biodiversity, um, which seemed backwards to us, <laughs> but also, um, and that how uninclude, well, what a pity it was that we conflated conservation agriculture, which is an alternative paradigm of agriculture with, um, with veganism, because um, you know, it's not an inclusive rallying cry. What is your rallying cry of agroecology, which is what he was arguing for, which we do as well, but just without the injustice and exploitation of, of other animals. I mean, I, you know, so the alternative rallying cry is also not inclusive of other animals. That would be my response. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, I think in general, um, the critiques are more to do with sort of ethical and like value biases rather than actually um, in terms of the, the, the science or the, um, the substance. So, and I think okay. that's really, that's, ex I think that that was, that's been really expected. Um, I think. That's so know. interesting. I mean, because when I read things like this, or I hear these perspectives, you know, sometimes there's just things that really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And I'll, so I'll like read some of this book or see some excerpts. Um, and I'm just like, oh, wow. Th yes, this is like, I hadn't thought to put it in those words. And this totally explains, you know, the, the problem with X, Y, and Z or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, but I still am so surrounded by people on the other side but in my experience, whenever it comes down to the actual facts and numbers and these other arguments, I really have yet to see, this is particularly on GMOs, for example, okay. that people promoting the industrial agriculture or GMO perspective can't really answer the, the they, there are a lot of talk about we're the pro-science side, we're the, the, we have the evidence on our side, you know, you can't feed the world with this and that, you can't feed the world with organic and, you know, and that's, so I still feel like I'm surrounded by a lot of that. Yeah. And so those are more the critiques and things I hear. And that's yeah. why I'm super curious, like, how do, like, do those people 
if they were to read this, do they just not have a response and they're just ignoring oh, it? Or no, I mean, no, no, no. I'm sure they would. <laughs> they, they just don't know about the book, probably. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, the people that we've asked to review the book have also been people that we think are, uh, I mean, some people have reviewed the book that we, you know, uh, let me just backtrack a bit. I think that this book is a really difficult book to review because it is trans- transdisciplinary <laughs> and it's so vast in scope. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to have like that vast scope, which people generally don't um, in their minds uh, and to be able to make those connections or see those connections when they're presented to you. Um, and so, yeah, I think but the, the people that have reviewed the book have generally been of the type who are already on board because, right. yeah, um, but I... I mean, I would, I would be so curious to see what um, somebody who is, um, you know, promoting GMOs, for example, could say to um, the chapter that we have by Dr. Alison Wilson, who, you know, she's a molecular biologist, a geneticist. I mean, you know, she, you're, you're friends with her, I think. Um, <laughs> you, you would know her background better than mine, but her chapter is one of the most comprehensive and detailed and most referenced chapter of the whole book, it is phenomenal. And I'm just like, what could anyone say to this? Like, really, um, it's not my field. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I probably, I'm not the right person to review it. But I mean, my, my father absolutely, um, mm-hmm. under, you know, understands the issues and was also blown away by that chapter and, and the depth of, 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 of research. And I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm so curious, because I, I haven't actually heard, there, there isn't, evidence that GMOs increase yield there's lots of evidence of the unintended um, traits that come about through um, from GMOs I mean and it, and it fits with this whole idea that you know we are functioning in complex systems and to, to think that to change one thing is not going to have all sorts of unpredictable effects even to me as a layperson in this field seems to make common sense so I would be very curious um, what kind of critiques yeah well I guess we'll (laughs) maybe see at some point (laughs) yeah so sort of on that note then I have recently had someone tell me that they think the entire field of organic agriculture is based on the naturalistic fallacy and that therefore there's nothing inherently good or even better about organic or uh, they were speaking specifically about organic agriculture in that category. They said there's nothing better that, you know, about that compared to industrial farming because natural is just um, a fallacy and organic is based on this natural fallacy. So I'm curious, what do you, like, have you ever heard that? What is your response? <laughs> what do you think about that idea? Um, well, I mean, I'm not, I don't know, what, what, what would I need to be a philosopher to understand what the naturalistic <laughs> fallacy is? I'm not one of those. So what I would, okay, what, what comes to mind is that, well, firstly, I would question whether organic is based on the idea that natural is best. My understanding is that originally the organic movement um, well, it wasn't just about being natural, it was a reaction to industrial chemical-based agriculture, which has a huge range of negative consequences on health and the environment, which are very, well, now they're very well documented and supported. I don't think that's controversial. Um, And, you know, as far as I know, organic doesn't necessarily mean natural either. You know, they they use organically produced chemicals um, for pests and diseases. Um, And I would also say that agriculture ultimately is an unnatural process. We are altering nature to create an environment um, within which we can produce biological products, 
which we need. Um, that's not natural. And so I think f- from my perspective, I think the question to ask is, um, or, or the thing to think about, or the thing that I think about is, can we do this unnatural thing um, as much, um, I suppose, in line with nature or how nature's processes function and without doing like damage to nature as much as possible or the alternative? And I think those are the kind of the two sort of like camps that I would um, say, you know, or if we were to assess different types, types of, um, of paradigms of agriculture. And I mean, I would agree to critic critiques of or people who critique organic agriculture. It, it can be done in a destructive way um, and, it, you know, with an industrial mindset. And, and sadly, um, organic agriculture has been, I think, quite diluted and co-opted um, over the years. Um, so, you know, you do get um, uh, production systems which are based on monocropping, on, you know, so-called organic uh, chemicals being used. And it's kind of the same sort of industrial mindset. Um, right. So I, I, would, I would say that. Um, but really, to me, it's about whether you're working with or against nature. Are you destroying nature or are you supporting nature's functions? I don't know that makes sense. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what I responded at the time was like, I don't really care whether it's based on a naturalistic <laughs> fallacy or not. I said, I care like what the evidence shows or the outcomes right. and impacts of these yeah. different systems. So yeah. like. So if the natural thing always ends up being better, like, well, that's the data speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. So then what do you actually think about this idea of whether or not regenerative agriculture or agroecology, veganic agriculture, can it actually feed the world? Um, Or do you think, as many people claim, that industrial agriculture is necessary to feed the world? Okay, um, so I, I'm interested in this whole idea of feeding the world because currently we produce enough food to feed more than 10 billion people. Um, and we're doing that all the while, while you know, producing surplus food that would going into animal factory farming and producing you know, ultra processed food and all of those sorts of things. Um, so the fact that we can feed over 10 billion people already, even though such a significant proportion of the food that we do grow is fundamentally wasted, means that, I mean, like this is a narrative um, that's being promoted by corporations and also supported by, um, organ- well, institutions like the Food and Agriculture Organization and their models that, you know, predict that we need to be increasing food supply hugely when actually the models overestimate demand and underestimate the supply so I would just push back on this this idea about feeding the world but just going back to then your question about whether regenerative or veganic agriculture can feed the world my answer is yes and there are lots of studies and reports showing that agroecological diverse agroecological farming um, can feed the world Um, and the one of the most prominent reports that's come out in the last well more than a decade now but was the ESDAD report which involved over 400 scientists and argued that small agroecological farms can feed the world and from my perspective and from the books well from my father's perspective um, we argue for organic conservation agriculture based farms and conservation agriculture is a form of agroecology and we think that it's more productive than um, typical agroecological or organic farms which you know have 
practices such as tilling the soil that are destructive. Um, so I think that would be like definitely yes. Um, and, you know, do we need industrial agriculture? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, industrial agriculture is, is one of the root, well, the driving causes of, of all of the crises that we're seeing today, climate and ecological breakdown, hunger, inequality. So no, we don't need it. Um, and the sooner we can get rid of it, the better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's generally my feeling, but I don't know as much about organic, veganic agriculture. And so that's why I was curious to hear. Yeah, and I, I would, I, I would just, I think I want to add as well that, um, you know, we, we think that veganic is really niche. Um, and so all we, you know, we can't possibly, you know, it can't be scaled up and then feed the world, etc. But conservation agriculture, which is by default, vegan, if not veganic, as in it doesn't have to be organic, but it drastically reduces the use of agrochemicals and other inputs, currently covers um, 15% of agricultural land. It's not vegan because of the ideology of the farmers, but it does not, the principles of conservation agriculture do not require you to um, use animal input. So uh -huh. by default, it, do, you know, it doesn't use animal, it doesn't require the use of animal um, products. So, and that has been scaled up um, exponentially over the last decade. That has been farmer driven. And that is a movement that I think the veganic movement can learn a lot from. It's been farmer driven um, through, you know, peer-to-peer -peer learning and farmer organizations and networks. And, and that's, you know, it's a movement that my father has been very much involved in. So um, I want to bust this myth that, you know, veganic is actually niche. It's not, it's just that, you know, there are other paradigms of agriculture that are actually, you know, that don't exploit animals, but they just don't call themselves veganic. So, yeah. Oh, wow. See, I didn't even know that at all. That is totally new information to me. <laughs> so that's really cool that there's already something that is sort of accidentally vegan that you said takes up 15% of farmland right now? Yes. Wow. Yes. And, and I, the other thing that I would add is, you know, all this talk about regenerative agriculture. If you look at some of the definitions and principles underlying regenerative agriculture, the majority of them actually have been borrowed from conservation agriculture, not tilling. So minimum soil disturbance, keeping um, the soil covered, so with cover crops or mulch, um, and diversified cropping systems. So then, you know, there's people add, you know, the grazing of animals and, and, and other things. But, you know, the core of regenerative is actually borrowed from conservation agriculture. So it is all, so not only is it vegan in inverted commas, you know, without the sort of the ethical imperative, um, but it's also very much regenerative. So it's a plant-based regenerative paradigm. So That's I think so it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I think it's important that we, we get that information out into the movement. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so final uh, question then that I'm asking everyone now is, what does science is gray mean to you? And how do you see this concept in terms of rethinking food and agriculture? Okay, so well, lots of things come up for me when I hear the science is grey. Um, I think we've, we've talked about this already, but it's, I think that it's the idea that our current dominant scientific paradigm is a mechanistic and reductionist paradigm that's based on um, this philosophy of uh, materialism that basically claims that all reality is material or physical and views nature as a machine. Um, and so clearly this approach is limited and this sort of belief system 
ultimately it is, I think, a belief system. Um, you know, most scientists, most people don't question it, are not conscious of it. Um, and so Rupert Sheldrake would say that, you know, this is an act of blind faith. So I, I would say that that's what one, that's one of the things that comes up for me, which is that, you know, this, this current paradigm needs to be questioned and that new, more holistic paradigms are already coming forward. I also think about, you know, what's happening, you know, when people say things like, oh, that's anti-science or, you know, and, I, and it, it makes me laugh because, you know, my understanding is that science is a, is a method of inquiry. It's not, um, it's not a worldview and it's not, you know, you believe this and not this. This is, so I think that comes up for me in terms of, you know, the science is grey. I think um, with my sort of political economist hat on, I, I think about science like everything, but, you know, it is increasingly being used to serve capital and power. Um, and it's, you know, it's, science is influenced by the same forces that promotes animal agriculture, that promotes war, and anything that will serve, you know, the, the elite's economic and political interests. And, and so um, we have to really be very critical and skeptical of the things that are coming out of like, you know, science and inverted commas, especially when you look at how much, um, you, know, so, you know, industry, so-called science is funded by, you know, industry and there's conflicts of interests and even the peer review and, and sort of journal, uh, academic journal system is, you know, I think it's heavily corrupted in many ways. So there's that. I think also, I think we have to, you know, be real about the fact that we are all, scientists included, biased um, and, you know, subject to the same constraints of human social life, like peer pressure and the need to conform to norms. Um, and there's a, there's a field that I would love to have the time to look into, but the, the sociology of science, which, yeah, studies the way that <laughs> scientists, um, you know, operate and shows how, you know, they, they build up networks of support, use resources and results to increase their own power and influence and com compete for funding and prestige. Um, and so, you know, all of this to me impacts the way that we do science and research, the types of questions that we ask, the way that we interpret the data. Um, so it's, yeah, um, <laughs> um, there's more, if you want more, there's something else is coming up for me. Go it? for it. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, is this, and we talk, you know, that we talk about this in the book as well, is that, you know, we, we think of the scientific method um, as the most superior way of knowing. Um, and I, and, you know, absolutely, I think the scientific method is wonderful. I wouldn't want to get rid of it. And there are also other ways of knowing which are important and that we ignore um, it, things like experience and intuition and indigenous, indigenous knowledge. And I think we need to have a better balance between different types of knowledge and, and ways of knowing if we really want to get a holistic understanding of you know, the universe. Um, and I think, you know, this plays out in infinite ways, um, but the things that come to mind um, and that I think some of the things that we talk about in the book is, you know, the promotion of industrial agriculture under the guise of development and promoted by um, philanthropic capitalists like Bill Gates um, and like the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, the uncritical promotion of GMOs and now gene editing. Um, I think um, the bias towards um, techno fixes and market-based solutions. 
finding solutions that benefit corporations and their profits rather than those which center small scale farmers and and nature and human health and all the things which are actually really important for us um, yeah beautifully put <laughs> so do you have anything else you'd like to add uh, anything we've talked about before we wrap up no i i would like to just encourage people to um check out the website that we've created around the book we know like it's an expensive book because it's an academic publication but if people want to check out chapter, chapter extracts and, and and see the key themes they can go to www.inclusiveresponsibility.earth um, and also just to say how lovely it's been to, to chat with somebody who's like-minded and has had parallel experiences <laughs> in their field so, yeah. likewise and, and i'll <laughs> link all of that in the in your website and everything in the show notes so people Brilliant. can check Thank that you. out Um, But thank you so much for coming on. This was a really fun conversation and really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. I've loved it.